Morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and our thoughts today are on how to pray. And more particularly, using Jesus' words, when to pray. When you pray. And so, how should we approach prayer as believers? That's one of the thoughts that's going on here. And over the next few weeks, well, the exception of next week, next week's Easter, and so be focusing on the resurrection of Christ. But following that, we'll be getting into more of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to introduce that a little bit today, just looking at the verses before it, and to think about how we approach prayer, how we, uh, what our motives are in doing so. Uh, someone once said, and uh, if you want to know the spiritual condition of someone, ask about their prayer life. Um, and I, I, when, I, when I heard that, when I, I don't remember if I heard it or if I read it, but that was one of the things that came out. Ask about their prayer life. And all I could think of was, please don't ask me about my prayer life. I find that I'm never satisfied with it. I think most Christians feel the same way. I've read a lot of books on prayer through the years. Uh, Many of them encouraged me. Most of them made me feel inadequate and discouraged. I, I love reading biographies of dead Christian men and women. I love going back and reading of their commitment and their love for Jesus Christ. And I often read and they will talk about their prayer life. Martin Luther's prayer life was legendary while he was still alive. He prayed for hours every day. Who speak of prayer warriors like George Mueller, who said, I'm never going to ask anybody for a dime in order to feed and care for all these orphans. And he didn't. He asked God, and God supplied. He's a God like that, isn't he? Or these men and women who would wake early in the morning. I typically try to wake early in the morning. And they would pray for four or five hours before they ever got started with their day. And although I I love hearing that, that's admirable. But it didn't so much inspire me as it made me feel I don't think I can attain that type of prayer life. Sometimes the books that we read on prayer don't convict us so much as they condemn us. So I'm very thankful when I come to Jesus' model of praying. 
And he lays it out so simply and beautifully. And so we're going to investigate that over the next few weeks. His prayer is more my speed. It doesn't take very long. And it's packed with goodness and truth. It gets to the core of prayer. And its motives. It's not so much focused on the art of praying. So much as it's focused on the heart of praying. And that's where Jesus is taking us all through this text, is the heart of our worship, the motive of our worship, the motive or the heart of our giving, the heart of our praying, the heart of our fasting. It's at the core of that. And so I want us to look at our text today. Beginning in verse 5, and I'm only going to go through verse 8 today. Uh, some of this is somewhat repetitive uh, because we've been looking at the, the first four verses uh, over the previous two weeks. But I, I want us to see what the Lord has to say about prayer, and I want us to think about our motives in praying. The first thing I want to do is I want to look at two examples of prayer found in these verses. And then the last thing I want us to do is to answer this question, why should we pray? I mean, it says God already knows what we need. What's the point? It's a good question. And it's a question I think we all need to know. So let's look what it says in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. So the first example of praying has two parts. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. This part of the first example is what I would want to call self-adoring prayer. Self-adoring prayer or the desire to worship self or to be worshipped by others. The Pharisees, they, you know, as they walked about, I mean, they had these robes that identified their righteousness. And they had this headgear and they had what they called phylacteries. I think I've got all the syllables in on that. And these were little cords that came down and they hung down and had various things hanging off of them that pointed to how righteous they were. Kind of like the old attendance pins in Sunday school. You know, walk in, there'd be an 85-year-old dude in there and, and he'd have, a, he'd have a, a, a string down to here of uh, perfect attendance pins. And 
Sunday school. Y'all remember those. Some of y'all do. The, the Pharisees really thought much of themselves. And they wanted others to think much of them also. Mostly in terms of how righteous they were. That they did all the right things. And they said all the right things. And they knew all the right scriptures. And they carried out all the works that they found in the law. They approached prayer in such a way that they would go to the places that would be crowded with people so that they could pray. And they could start saying all these things to God and everybody would be impressed with them. They loved their positions of authority and perceived themselves as men of great importance and righteousness. And they were proud of it. Luke 18, 9 through 10 gives us a glimpse beyond the pomp of the Pharisee and his dress into the words, their words in prayer. Jesus presents a parable, if you will. But I don't think the parable is uh, lacking of truth. In verse 9 of Luke 18, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice that, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. By the way, that's the danger of spiritual pride is to look at others in contempt. He goes on in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see these words coming out, Jesus giving a, a glimpse. And it's so easy to fall into pride concerning our righteousness. Even as Christians, it's common for us to see ourselves as above others who do not make the same moral and ethical choices as we make. You know, it's vital for us to understand something. That apart from the grace and mercy of God, we would be calling sin good, and we would be calling good evil. 
apart from the grace of God of Him making known to us our sinfulness and our sinful condition and putting before us the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would absolutely be far away from Him and far away from His thinking and far away from His goodness and far away from the ways that He's called us to walk and live and act in righteousness. He calls us to pray, but not like the Pharisees. Don't pray like hypocrites. Do you know what hypocrites do? They say one thing, and they do another thing. Don't be like that. Don't tell God you love Him, and then go prove that you don't. He's saying don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray longing to be to receive the reward of the praises of men. Our last two sermons I mentioned this. I mentioned the audience that you're seeking to please is the one who will reward you. The great expanse in that thinking is that if you're seeking to please men, that reward is going to last a very short time. If you're seeking to please God, if He is the audience of your prayer, if He is the audience of your acts of worship, if He is the audience of your worship as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know the reward of God is eternal. Never ends. No matter what men do to you, God will ultimately show you Himself personally in all of glory. So He says, don't seek a trifle reward. So our praying should not be for the praise of men, but for the glory of God. Our our ability to pray rightly flows from being related to the God who saves and sanctifies. It doesn't come simply because I know religious words. But the words that come forward, come forward because of a relationship with the living God. And He has, apart from any merit of our own, saved us so that we could be in relationship with Him. He calls us, get this, children of God. You once were children of wrath. Deserving the wrath of God. But now he calls you children of God. What a difference that is. And we call him Father. So the first thing he points out is don't be caught up in self adoring prayer. Don't be caught up in prayer that brings. Adoration to yourself. 
but only that that adores the God who loves you. Look at verse 7, because here we find uh, another example, or part 2 of the first example. Verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, I always want to point out the expectation of praying. Okay? When you pray. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. He makes a pretty dramatic shift here from talking about how the hypocritical Pharisees pray to how the Gentiles pray. It's easy to miss that if we don't notice. But he says, uh, uh, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. I, I want to call this ignorant praying. I know that's not a word you often hear come from the pulpit, but it's what it is. Ignorance is uh, they, don't, they don't know any better. Or they have no knowledge and being able to pray rightly. We should not be ignorant as to how to pray. But their uh, way of praying was to heap up empty phrases. One, one aspect of empty phrases is they would pray many words. Thinking they would be heard because of their Many words. Understand that these are the philosophers of the day. Their thought was that the, the gods uh, want to obey or respond to the person who speak not only many words, but the right words. And to them, the right words were philosophical words. We don't want to pray in ignorance, and we don't have to. One, because He has redeemed us and made us His children, and so we're not ignorant of the living God. Two, He's given us His Word, and so we know what His desire is and what He longs for in our prayer and in our living. As we look at this, I, I, I want us to consider uh, and, and understand that God calls us, and there's a, a, an implication here. He calls us and He provides for us. But there's another implication in this example. Look with me at verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He knows what you need. The implication is, is that in their praying, uh, that God does not know what they need unless you tell God what you need. That's the implication in their praying, the praying of the Gentiles. The only way God knows is if I let God know. What kind of God is that? But many people pray like that as though God doesn't know what it is that you need. Well, child of God, let me know, let you know something. He does know what you need. He knows exactly what you need, always. 
which is why we're going to answer the question a little later on. Why should we pray? But first, let me think about this. Why throw empty words at God? Empty words would be words that are just words. They have nothing behind them. They're not coming from any need or any core relationship that you have. They're just empty phrases that sound good. There's not any kind of depth in this praying because there's no real knowledge of the one that you're praying to nor knowledge of what the desire is of the one that you're praying to. That's how the Gentiles were. Don't be like them. Don't be ignorant of the Word of God. And don't be far away from Him when He's called you to be near to Him. John Bunyan I always counted a victory when I called John Bunyan, John Bunyan, and I don't call him Paul Bunyan, okay? It's always a victory, all right? Because when you say Paul Bunyan, everybody's got the idea of a blue ox, I think, or something like that, you know. But John Bunyan, he, he's the author of the, uh, of the book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, said this, When thou prayest, rather let thy heart be without words than thy words without heart. I want to read that again. I want you to think about what he's saying. When thou prayest, rather let thy heart be without words than thy words without heart. I may need a little bit of explanation there. Has sorrow so overwhelmed you before that you had no words? That you, if you had them, you couldn't speak them? All you know is that your heart is broken. All you know is that you've suffered great loss. Have you been there? And you really had nothing that you could say. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes these words. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You ever been where you don't know what to pray? Your heart is just sunk. But even under the burden and the weight of the sorrow or the discouragement, or the disappointment. Your heart from the depth of that place is still pointing to the living God. And all you've got in you is, I trust you. 
if you even have those words. That's what Bunyan is talking about. When he speaks of your heart being without words. Rather than your words being without heart. Coming from a place of no relational value with God. Coming from a place of having nothing to bring before Him. Just empty phrases, empty words. To pray with your mouth what is not truly in your heart is called hypocrisy. To pray with your mouth what is not truly in your heart is called hypocrisy. And I want us to know that as God loves a broken and contrite heart, He hates a divided heart. He loves a heart that's broken, contrite, coming before Him. I've got no words. I've got no solutions. All I have in heaven, Lord, is you. Don't need much more than that, right? Don't need any more than that. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, touches on this place as well. It says in verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Jesus said something about the many words. Jesus is not against long prayers. Matter of fact, we read in the Gospels that Jesus would go off by himself at night and pray all night long. He wasn't opposed to long prayers. He was opposed to prayers that had no heart to them. That had no depth of relationship in them. We're speaking of let your words be few. It's actually looking back at what it says. Don't let your heart be hasty. Don't use rash words. Think. Let whatever you say unto God flow from a place a relationship, and informed praying. What informs our praying? Certainly, it's the Word of God. Just so you know where we are, that was the second part of the first example. And now I want to briefly point you to the second example that he gives. Uh, Look with me in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The second example displays a right approach to praying. Uh, I, I want us to notice this, and I want to give you a different analogy. He's, he says, go into your room. Is he being literal there, or is he giving us an example, an analogy? Certainly there's a time for prayer that takes place in solitude. But is he simply speaking of the geographical or physical location of our praying? Or is he speaking of the mental and spiritual place that we should go to in prayer? Maybe we need another analogy. Let me say this. When you pray... Dip into the inner recesses of your heart and into God's heart and then pour it out to God. (laughs) I believe that's what's going on there. You say, well, what about secret? Certainly it's speaking of that which is hidden. But it's also speaking of that which is common. When you think about praying in the Bible, and you go back to the Old Testament, you find a guy by the name of Daniel. And many of the leaders in that time and in that day were envious of Daniel because of his position and his wisdom. So they kind of set a trap for him. And they convinced the king Hey, tell people they can only pray to you. What do you think Daniel did? It says that he opened up his windows, just as he always did. And three times a day he prayed, just like he always did. He didn't pray in private. He continued to do what was common. The secret here was not that he wouldn't hit himself and prayed. The secret here was that he was in the depths of God in his praying. He was saying, there is no other God that I can pray to. And so he did what he always did. He prayed as he always prayed. He didn't change a thing. About his routine. He just kept going. So when you pray, dip into the inner recesses of your heart and into God's heart. And pour it back out to God. Those of you who are walking through master life right now. Are familiar with a passage that you've had to memorize. A passage that, uh, uh, that has been uh, highlighted in your study. John chapter 5, verse 7. I, I love that passage because it intermingles that which informs our prayer 
and how God answers our prayer. And how we should approach prayer. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It will be done. Y'all hear those words? Listen to it again. If you abide in me. That's a, that's a word that speaks of being with in the presence of, dwelling, tabernacling, abiding. Have you ever uh, just really found some security somewhere and you want to be close to that place or to that person? I think of abiding as something I, I really didn't have an example of it until I had granddaughters. And I, I have an abundance of granddaughters now, you know. I'm about to have seven grandchildren, and only two of them are boys. I raised boys. You know what's something that boys don't do, even from this age when they're toddling around? Or at least they don't do it long. They don't crawl up into your lap and snuggle. They don't do that. I remember I didn't have any girls. I was talking to one of our members, and he was talking about, he said, oh, man, you've missed it then. You've missed how the, those little girls will crawl up into your lap and just snuggle for no reason at all. I'm like, man, you're being mean right now, you know. Then I got granddaughters. You know what they do? Man, for no reason at all. They just come running and leap into your arms. Or they crawl up into your lap when you're just sitting there. And they just put their head on their shoulder. You wrap your arms around them. And they rest right there. I think they can do it for hours. I can't sit still for hours, so I wouldn't know. But I can sit there for a while like that. So the analogy breaks down because of my hyperactivity, okay? But the sense of understanding that somebody's resting on you doesn't fade away. If you abide in me, if you find your rest in me, if you crawl up into my lap and snuggle, I'm there. I'm there. In Latin, the ancients defined prayer as a sensus mentis ad diem. A climbing up of the heart unto God, your heart, into Him. That's how they described it. When you pray, does your heart climb up into Him to rest in Him, to seek Him, to know Him, to embrace Him, to listen to Him? Jesus goes, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
Simple, okay? Right here. Where are his words? You're holding them in your lap, okay? Right here. In other words, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask. It goes straight to prayer there, doesn't it? You see it intermingled? Why is that? Because the Word of God is what informs us what to pray to this God that we love so much that we would crawl up into His heart. We want to know Him, and we want to know what to pour back out to Him. That's why I say that the right approach is when you pray, dip into the inner recesses of your heart and into God's heart and pour it back out to God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know why he says that? Because if you're abiding in him and his words are abiding in you, your asking is not going to be amiss. It's going to be in line with his word. It's going to be in line with his will. That's how he calls us and what he calls us toward. God wants to be gracious to us. And he waits for us to crawl up next to him. And ascend our heart to him. And trust him with all of our heart and with all of our being. In our praying. All right. Now I got less than five minutes to talk about why we should pray. Because it says there in Matthew chapter 6. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Then why pray? First, because it is precious to the Father that He is the one to turn to for everything in your life. It's precious to Him. Hey, Dad, can you fix this? Hey, Dad, can you do this? Ain't a dad that didn't love hearing those things. Well, of course I can fix it. I'm Dad. You know, of course I can do this. Again, the analogy breaks down, but I want you to know there's nothing God cannot do. And we know that we can turn to Him in sorrow and in fear and in all the things that come to us and cause anxiety in us. We can come to the Father and He is our comfort and our strength. And he will answer in his own good time and do his will in his own good time. And we can trust that whatever time that is, it's the right time. He loves for us to turn to him. It needs to be understood that God wants his children to come to him and trust him and love him. He wants you to want him. Can you imagine that? Can you even grasp that concept? That God wants you to want Him. Very much in the practice of prayer is a desire of knowing Him. I'm just trying to get our hearts tuned a little bit to the way that we approach Him. Not like the Pharisees and not like the Gentiles, but like children who love him deeply. He wants us to want him, not in the same way we want people to want us. 
God's not lacking. He's not lacking, and, and, and so He needs the fulfillment of our presence. Instead, it's because being in His presence is best for you and me. Isn't it? Isn't that the best place we could be? In the presence of God? When we're suffering, suffering and struggling? When we don't know what tomorrow brings? By the way, I want you to know, you never know what tomorrow brings. He knows that the best place for you is in His presence. Day in, day out, all the time, in His presence. With Him. Second, He is able and willing to provide all that we need. To be most satisfied in Him rather than satisfied in the trifles of this world. And there are a lot of things that come our way in this life. Sickness, poverty, hunger, pain. All sorts of things that come our way. There's a lot of things that get in our way of our relationship with the living God. Things. Stuff. Experiences. Well, I want to do this, or I want to have this, or so forth. The possessions that we have. But basically, our approach to prayer is that He is my everything. And to Him, I turn for everything. You know, one of the things I've said in Times past, I guess I still say it to some degree. Someone struggling with something, and pretty much this was around the house more than anything. We'd be talking about something, and maybe it was some disturbing thing or some trial that was going on in our family or whatever. And I would just simply say this. It's all kindling. It's all kindling. It's just all going to burn up one day. And what it all really comes down to is it comes down to this. That God is our everything. And when we pray, we come to Him well informed by the Word of God. And we come to Him well attuned to being in relationship with Him. So the first thing I want to say is this. If you don't have that relationship with Him, that's the first step in an effective prayer life is knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing God through Jesus. By faith. Through faith in Him. That's where a prayer life starts. Secondly, prayer life is well-informed when a believer is well-informed by the Word of God. We pray God's words back to Him. We pour out to Him 
the needs that we have, but also the words that he has given. And he hears us and he answers us. You know why? Because he loves us, his children. Let's pray together. So, Father, help us to pray. Teach us to pray. Help us, Lord, to see the wonder and the glory of who you are when we pray. Not to approach you in rash ways, but instead, Lord, to be faithful, to trust you, and to ask, Lord, according to your will. To seek you, Lord, with all of our hearts. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would guard us from the spiritual pride that could so easily entangle us as children of God. And Father, help us, Lord, to find you as our great, steadfast hope. Not in the things of this world that are all going to burn up, but in the one who stands forever. Father, let us never forget that you know everything and that we can trust you with our lives. Father, that we could say with Job, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Or Lord, that we could sing like Paul and Silas chained and imprisoned because the joy of our hearts was not our surroundings but our Savior. God, I pray, Lord, that we would find in you our greatest satisfaction. And Father, not in the praises of men, not in the things of this world, but in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.